1: the next reel everybody i'm pete Wright, and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show we're back again with bergman and hitchcock and we're just trying to get the right key so we can unlock the door to notorious
0: i to intrude on this tender scene? I, uh, I knew her before you did, loved her before you did. I wasn't as lucky as you. I'll take care of her myself.
1: No, not of that way. I stood looking at her when she was asleep. I could have... Quiet, Alex. You were almost as impetuous as before your wedding. You
0: bought me from that episode. Let me arrange this one. Before we get into keys, Pete, can I... Yeah. Um, this is a really important topical point for this conversation. What is up with the font for it's the not, title oh screen? Oh, God.
1: What is up with the font, <laughs> Andy? There's nothing...
0: It's, <laughs> uh, thrilling uh, or or psychologically terrorizing or horrifying about it it is a bubbly happy uh like a rom-com font what well, is it's up
1: tilting it's like tilting toward you and maybe they were going they thought that was threatening maybe it's is just it like, a like tilt. ghosts
0: it's it's ghost
1: <laughs> it's ghost but it's not even a notorious ghost this is decidedly the font of a friendly ghost it's terrible.
0: It's <laughs> I terrible. Could, I I mean, you yeah, yeah I, this this film we're going to talk uh, a lot about the movie, but I just had to start it off by like what is that why? Yeah, why, why would they do that? They starting like this.
1: Well, and and at the risk of, you know, just lampooning this terrible terrible choice of fonts, what do you think in your in your best and most scholarly uh, approach to titling? Why would they have done this? I mean, do you have a perspective that you can share?
0: Why would they have chosen this font? Yes.
1: Why would they have chosen? You know, chosen? there do you are have always guess?
0: eras for new fonts. Every font had a starting point. Maybe this was the starting point for this font, and <laughs> and and Hitchcock said, hey, that looks lovely." <laughs> well, I, that just I, gave I, you
1: an opportunity to do Hitchcock again. Welcome did. back, Hitch.
0: <laughs> Uh, oh, this is probably why we've avoided doing Hitchcock for so long, so we don't have to torture people with my Hitchcock impersonations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, I'm, it is. I a, will it's, tell it's, a, you, this, uh, is
1: gonna, this is going to actually make you very excited. You can acquire the Notorious font from dafont.com, and it's called appropriately Notorious, the, uh, and it is available free for personal use. So if you want to write like Notorious, you can do it thanks to Defont.com.
0: That always makes me uh, skeptical of the font when they call it the name that it is probably known for, because yeah. <laughs> I doubt when they use the font in the movie, that it was, it was called, called Notorious. Notorious. <laughs> no. and in fact, Let's use it this font, because it's called the same as our movie title. <laughs> wow, what, what are the odds? Well,
1: and you can even tell it's not quite the font. It's close, but yeah. it's, not, it's not quite it, uh, because, you know, probably copyrights and stuff but uh it, it it's approximate and funny yeah yeah it doesn't have the tilt. That's what bugs me because what you really want is the friendly
0: notorious tilt. You do need that, it, 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 but it's a tricky. It's a tricky tilt because every word is going to have to have its own like yeah. tilt. So the left end of the word is tilting to the left, and the right end of the word is tilting to the right. So it's got that like looming quality. Yes, and that yeah. that's going to require every letter to kind of change a little bit. One this, does We're not, spending way too much time talking. Yeah, about one the does font. not loom lightly.
1: No, let me tell you the problem. I think the reason that the font is so so shocking and so shockingly stupid in this movie is because the movie is so good. Would
0: you agree? <laughs> the movie is so good. I love this, this movie. I had a
1: blast
0: watching this movie. I have, as you know, Pete, I have been going through all of Hitchcock's sound films from his British period all the way up to moving to Hollywood. And I slowed down just so I could time it with these two Ingrid Bergman films so that I could watch them with this series as we were doing it. And I have to say, this is I think the twenty second film that I've watched of Hitchcock's um, in you know recent months, and by far this is my favorite. I feel like this is Hitchcock really clicking into what makes him kind of the the Hitchcock that he's going to become. There is this psychological element to the characters that is really interesting and tortured and and fascinating the way that they play off of each other there is real smart uh and and uh, a, a solid understanding of the way to play with his camera and really do some interesting things to kind of help tell his story um the darkness the humor everything blended perfectly to make what i think so far is you know hitchcock's best film up to this point
1: Which is so surprising, especially coming off of last week and how I was not spellbound by by that film. Uh, I see and what you think, did there. I, do you see what I did? This is I think <laughs> this is going to be a conversation that might be full of them. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was not keen on it and uh, it, it was a, such a surprise to sit down and look at how, uh, you know, how what this film resolved in terms of that that threatening Hitchcockness, right? The suspenseful Hitchcockness that I have. Like you said, like this is what he becomes. Uh, the way it sets up the story so beautifully in such a a short uh, span of screen time and leads us right into the banal day to day of our principal character as she's pouring drinks for her buddies and we we meet the mysterious stranger. I all of that is just fantastic for me. It just it, it's just fantastic.
0: Yeah, you're you're talking about uh, the introduction of Ingrid Bergman, um, who is is so perfect in this film, uh, to Cary Grant, who is the mysterious Devlin, and what an introduction. The fact that Hitchcock introduces him by showing us a silhouette, basically, of the back of him, the back of his head at this party, and we don't even, we don't hear from him. There's, there's no sense that this is our leading man. It's so brilliantly executed because it, it kind of creates this shadowy figure that becomes a, a key part of her life. It's beautifully done and very intriguing the way that he chooses to do it because it's not what you would expect for kind of a typical leading man at the time. The fact that we are introduced to him through the back of his head speaks to kind of the way that Hitchcock uh, would, uh, would work with his actors to create these moments that allowed for you know, not the Hollywood norm. And I think that this is the sort of thing that Hitchcock would become known for that allowed, or I, that, uh, actors would, uh, be excited to work with him because he would make these choices. And this, you know, Hitchcock is notorious for kind of being very, I don't want to say dictatorial, but he had a vision and he stuck to it. And, uh, you know, I think th- there were times when that made it more difficult for certain actors than other times. I think in this particular case, he found the right team of actors to work with that made everything play to everybody's advantage.
1: Let's uh, let's start with our uh, opening title sequence. Uh, because we once we get through all of the opening credits, the litany of opening credits, we get to uh, an opening title screen that just gives us essentially a date and time plate. What's the significance of that?
0: You know, it's it's an odd thing, and it really is interesting when you kind of evaluate exactly what they're doing and why. It's designed not in the 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio, the typical film aspect ratio. It's actually brought in as if it's old newsreel footage, and you kind of have that kind of much smaller frame that's kind of soft around the edges and then we slowly push into it but um, so it's designed already to kind of have a newsish sort of feel to it but then it gives us some some very specific dates which is an i mean hitchcock certainly would employ that later um, in his films and it's a film it's a technique that other filmmakers have played around with we've talked about brazil on the show terry gilliam kind of throws that in into brazil which is really fun you know. Know, tea time whatever it is um here we have miami florida three twenty p m april twenty fourth nineteen forty six this is letting the audience know i mean we are very current to the time that this is being released this this movie is released august nineteen forty six april nineteen forty six is a kind of a big moment because the Nuremberg trials are just getting underway. And this is, you know, the end of World War II, and here we are starting to process what's been going on and dealing with these wartime criminals and actually putting them through trials to figure out uh, kind of the levels of guilt for all the people involved um, on the side of the Nazis. And this is putting this story Right in the middle of that, which works really well in context of a story about Nazi wartime criminals kind of hiding away from uh, from Germany. Totally. And
1: it's it's uh, it's the one of the things I think most interesting is how we open on such an incredibly timely and important and significant, uh, you know, function, right? A trial of Nazis. In 1946. And it is all we get is, you know, from the back of their heads in this courtroom shot through a door. And I love the framing of that shot. Right. And otherwise, the significance of that is essentially wiped away. Right. It is it is we move so quickly into the story of the daughter of Bergman in this case that I find that such an interesting thing, the way he is and really deftly able to get us to stop caring immediately about the trial part, about the potential war crimes part, about uh, the stuff that immediately comes to mind when you think about the significance of this time, this period, and move straight into something else, the socialite, the how normal life is for her as she's pouring drinks for people. I, I find that um, uh, a, a
0: expert turn. Not only that, but it gives us a really interesting psychological study of a person whose life has really been turned upside down by all of this tumult that has just been thrust into it. Here she was kind of a – I don't know. I get the sense that she was a little bit of a a, – already kind of with her father. They were – It felt kind of debutante, you know, she seemed like a lady about town type of person uh, until her father and and she knows her father is up to no good. But uh, she as we kind of get that conversation later when we hear the recording from Devlin is that she was against her father. And and that's the reason they come to her, because they believe that she will she can play into the Nazis hands while also being on the side of the Americans. But we get this sense that uh, this is a broken woman, and she seems very uh, well-to-do. But at this party already, and this is the beginning of the film. She has this this just complexity. And there is something going on about this this party, but she's, you know, really dark and sullen because of what's going on with her father. And and there's so much going on with her through so much of this film. I, I mean, I think this, I mean, we've had some some really terrific Ingrid Bergman performances so far, but wow, what she does here, the way she plays this character, it is really complex and really interesting to watch her kind of go through the motions of this film.
1: Well, you know, it's fascinatingly, and, and, and it's a, a performance that feels uh, like she was meant to play it, you know, yeah. and and the fact that her—it's it, just everything was right here. Her age, her accent, her demeanor, her uh, just the the way she's able to to interact with Cary Grant, both sort of professionally, socially, romantically. I had no questions at all about their relationship together uh, in terms of that age difference we've been talking about with her and some of her other uh, leading men. Uh, That, for me, was just ancient history. You know, oh, what a difference a year makes. This was such an incredible performance compared to what we where we have come from
0: yeah and and, i mean spellbound she was fine in spellbound like i I think that she delivered a really interesting performance for uh for uh, a role that they didn't always write to the the possible strengths they could have with that role which made it more frustrating this one i think is much more on par with what she delivered in gaslight where it was a really complex role of a woman who's trying to work through these these this situation and understand exactly what's going on very much similar here but she she kind of knows what's going on but she's just she's uh, you know frustrated by this situation she has to basically wed this this former nazi friend of her father's so that she can basically work for the the us government and give them the information that they need meanwhile dealing with this feeling of love that she has for Devlin and finding him to for some reason all of a sudden being very distant and everything it's just so complex and and there's such an there's a step up for Hitchcock i think going to a, a level that is it still is fun but there's a level of kind of this adult psychology that he's exploring in a much stronger way in this film and i think it it's a marked point from here forward, that we're going to see in a lot more of his films. I think before there was a lot more, I don't want to say black and white, I don't think that's right, but the the way that the characters were written was um, a, little, a little more narrow-focused, which is fine. You get interesting characters still, but I don't think they had as much kind of interesting kind of psychological layers to them.
1: I think to that point specifically, I, I think it's so it was surprising to me uh, just how believably petty they were in terms of their romantic attraction to one another in this movie. Does, does that make sense? Is that does that relate you relate to that statement?
0: I'm not sure of the petty part. What do you mean?
1: Well, the fact that they had this relationship that they both knew there there was an attraction a romantic attraction and yet they uh, weren't able to to sort of be honest with one another about it as she you know her Talks about other men and how you can add him to the list of my playthings. You know, adding all of this, it just sounded very much like, uh, like what people would say if they were in that situation and didn't know how to talk to one another. It wasn't sure, particularly sure. cinematic. It was high school pettiness that we are <laughs> all capable of when we are in relationships and we don't know how to talk. And I, yes. I actually found myself rather than like, there's a real change. That you could watch this and, and think this is ridiculous. Let's be adults. But for some reason, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman pull that off in a way that I find not only believable, but really kind of charming and, uh, and, and the way it resolves satisfying.
0: Well, and I, I totally agree. I totally agree. There is, and, and I get what you're saying now. And what I think is so interesting is because it's Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman at this point in career in their careers, where they're very popular, very successful actors. It makes for real heartbreak and real kind of, uh, frustration as they're going through these moments and, and you know that they love each other and, uh, but they're, they keep closing these doors or they keep throwing these digs at each other because, um, because of the, you know, the complexity of the situation that they're unfortunately stuck in. And, and it, it hurts. I don't know. It hurt my heart as I was, they would say these things to each other. I'm like, no, you you don't really feel that. Don't do that. But I, and that's oh, why I, I f- find it such an interesting film film, because these are people who really there's there's clearly something about them that works. And I think the casting, obviously, it helps. And and, and finding these people to work so well together is critical. But I and because they are such big actors when they're having these issues and they're people that we love so much, it really I mean, I just I bought into everything and it made all of the emotion that much stronger for me throughout. Yeah,
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Now, there were some things that are particularly 1946 ish
0: yeah i mean you know we've got a moment early in the film when she's drunk and she's uh she's driving drunk um he kind of lets her this is um at the party they're out driving and she's driving like kind of a maniac and and he stops her after well a cop pulls them over and everything he's trying to get her he's trying to take over as the driver and stuff and it's a little physically abusive it's not exactly a good scene uh granted he's you know he's in the right, trying to prevent the drunk woman from driving anymore, but still, you know, basically beating her to get her out of the seat. It's a little much uh, to take. It's uh, it was that was a hard moment to watch
1: as he's as he karate chops her fingers to get them off of the steering wheel. <laughs> that was the low point for me when she started fighting back. I didn't get the feeling that he was actively trying to harm her. No, like no, no. It felt much more like a restraint situation. But yeah. but the way yeah, i mean it was just it your it felt 1946 uh yeah. that where where that was still okay I, I don't know i i didn't believe that that was a that that would have necessarily have been a natural character move for him it felt like a cultural move of the era
0: that's uh yeah i suppose that's a good way to describe it it does feel cultural and something that people i mean again She's drunk, he's finally, you know, putting a stop to it and everything. I get it. But still, it feels uh, rough. It feels rough in today's eyes. Gross. Yeah, it's gross.
1: Uh, We've got to talk about subjective camera in in this thing. Uh, And and I want to bring it up now, particularly because I don't want to let this out of my head. The first POV shot of the film, I think, after we leave court, is when they're driving and it cuts to a shot of her perspective as she's driving. And Hitchcock, he's so smart, he actually has her hair occluding the camera. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that is brilliant because the next shot is a reverse shot on her through the dashboard. And you see her hair is right blowing in her eyes. And then we cut back and we're looking through the the, the drive the windshield and we're in that POV mode again. There's hair and it's blowing in front of the camera. That's genius. When does that happen, Andy? When does that happen, I ask you?
0: Well, it's better than uh, cat butt POVs, I guess. <laughs> I'm so glad Which listeners he that of the this Saturday weekend, Monday yes. will will certainly understand that one. You yes. know, it's uh yeah, well, and not only that, but but I love that it actually becomes a point of conversation as she's like, oh, "Where did all this fog come from?" <laughs> Before she realizes that is her own hair. Uh It's it's a great moment. And Hitchcock, uh, we talked about POV in the last film. Obviously, it was a key part of that film. But here we get it again, and what a what a nice kind of shift going to this, where it's just a director who's becoming even more assured as he continues exploring with his uh, cinematic tools. In this case, after she wakes up from that night of drunkenness and she's uh, see she sees Devlin in the doorway. And he walks in and everything is askew. And as he kind of continues approaching her and passing her, the camera does this weird shift until all of a sudden he's upside down. Really fascinating way to kind of portray that. I loved that Hitchcock was allowing himself that freedom. To move the camera like that,
1: well, and this is one of those beautiful things where that camera uh, became such a part of identity of the character it was representing right I mean i and I think that's part of the benefit of starting us off with that POV camera looking through her hair and the fog uh, because. It it gives us that sense that that camera really is her. It's just it's not just what she's seeing. It is her, and that personification changes the way we see it next time. It changes the way when it's not so funny. When we're actually seeing something through her face that's dizzying, we actually are experiencing what she's experiencing, not just seeing what she's seeing. And I think that's a that's a subtle difference, but it's all the difference in in you know how it gives us that emotional impact on the film. What what do you think? Yeah, about- you're
0: talking specifically about the poisoning.
1: Yes, so let's uh, talk about the poisoning then.
0: Yeah. It's great the way that uh, well just just speaking to the POV, yeah, I think you're right. It, it continuing that that subjective camera as we are really in uh Alicia's head as she's now being poisoned by her uh her Nazi husband and his creepy mother it's it's really uh i mean it's a, it's a trick we've seen in cinema time and time again when somebody is and in fact we talked about it on the Saturday matinee show that the different types of pov camera work and how there is this you know the 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 pov of somebody who is Affected by something, whether it's drugs or alcohol or or getting knocked on the head or dizziness or whatever. It may be Um, this is a good example of kind of the poisoning where everything is kind of blurry and kind of out of focus and everything. But you're right. We've seen her POV enough throughout this film where we're getting a really good sense that. When we're kind of in that mode with that camera, that we are feeling kind of Alicia's perspective, and it 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 allows us to really identify even that much more with this character.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the story and how it plays out, because this is it's a little bit of a different kind of Hitchcock story. If you're thinking about Hitchcock and you think of Hitchcock as the you know Psycho. Movie that sort of the horror thriller. This is not that film. Um, This is uh, very much, uh, I I think you could call it a a political or suspense thriller.
0: Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting about this particular suspense thriller is this is portraying the American government. Literally, like right after the end of World War II, in a way that is, I think, more complex than perhaps they the the United States government would have liked to have been portrayed. This is portraying them as a government that it, it's not just the rah rah, you know, let's go fight the Nazis and win, and and you know, John Wayne. Uh, every everything is um, all, all stars and stripes, sort of hunky dory, sort of thing. This is a much more adult, complex, adult political thriller where the good guys are basically convincing this woman to. I mean, they're they're using her. I mean, they they pretty much forced her, I guess you could say, into this situation where she has to marry this Nazi. It is very kind of, we're not in the black and white world anymore. It's very gray as to the the methodologies behind our government as they go through this plotting and planning to uncover this uranium plot. It's such a, a Hitchcock MacGuffin, this whole uranium ore plot that what's going on with these wine bottles. Um, it's, it's It just felt so Hitchcockian when that came up as to what's actually in the bottles. <laughs> but yeah, it, I found it to be like, this is 1946. This is like right after everything, you know, the Nuremberg trials are going on. And here we have this situation where, uh, you know, the United States government, it's not necessarily just the good guys. There is some complexity to these decisions they're making. It, really interesting, I think.
1: It, it it's a movie that says, you know, what happened after the war? It got more complicated. The world yeah. got. More complicated, and we're going to demonstrate that through the course of the relationships of these people and what we ask of each other to do, uh, as a function of you know supporting our country and uh, and and the lengths that we will go and the costs of those lengths. uh, I I think are are apparent here. That to me is the cultural statement of this movie. It's not so much about you know. I, I think your your point about the MacGuffin of the ore is great. Like who who cares about the ore? What we really care about is what he has asked her and the american government has asked her to do and when i say ask i mean blackmailed right i mean this is a this is that story uh and it is told through through i think much greater subtlety than than certainly hitchcock to date
0: it's yeah it's a really interesting exploration of of this dark story and i i just i am really um Happy to see that it came out the way it did, especially because it began in such uh, such a potentially uh, uh, disruptive uh, process because this was originally a Selznick production, just and like everybody Spellbound knows before it.
1: That yeah. The movies of Selznick and Hitchcock in particular are not
0: controversial. And great (laughs) thrillers erupt from things like contract disputes, right? (laughs) Oh my goodness! No, yeah, this was a Selznick project, but uh, he had been working on it with Hitchcock, and uh, this was this was a story Hitchcock wanted to do this confident this a story about confidence tricks on a grand scale with Ingrid Bergman as the woman, and he said her training would be as elaborate as the training of a Mata Hari. And so they started kind of developing this based on a—I think it was a story in—oh, uh, what was the—I um, can't remember what the story was. I, but they found a story in an old magazine. Oh, it's Saturday Evening Post. That's what it was. They found this story. And and Hitchcock—I mean, really, there's not a lot of connection from that story. It's almost like you could have the same credit that we got last time with Spellbound, the inspired by yeah, or right. suggested by. Suggested by, Right, right. Um, but this, so this, uh, so Hitchcock started working on this and was working on uh, the script with Ben Hecht. And Selznick was just buried. He was really focused on a different project that he was working on at the time. And because that project kind of was just kind of sucking up all of his time. I mean, it was just all of his time was going away. He was uh, really not able to, to focus on Notorious. And he finally hit this point where just financially he wasn't able to do it anymore. And he said, you know what, I'm going to sell this to RKO, just to get some quick cash, which he did, and it turned into an RKO project. And because of that, and now, now Selznick still had 50% of the profit share. Um, he got paid handsomely for it, all of that sort of stuff. Because he still had 50%, he still felt like it was his right to write his memos. And he certainly did and tried to get a you know his hand in the casting and everywhere else he could. But this became the first film that Hitchcock really got to produce on his own. In Hollywood. And it really ended up setting the stage for what a Hitchcock film would become and and how they would be known. And I think that because of all of the way that this played out, it became that there are just so many reasons why this became the Hitchcock film that really set the stage for what we're going to see from Hitchcock over the next couple decades.
1: The casting of this thing, you know, when you talk about their Selznick-Hitchcock relationship, the casting, it sounds like, was, um, what's the word, not easy?
0: <laughs> well, at least it was with Bergman. We know We know that, we know Hitchcock that was wanted lock, her, and, right. Yeah, and she was already under contract with Selznick, so she was on board pretty easily. Now, when he went over to RKO, Selznick—and and I think initially, um, you know, Cary Grant was— I think—I I don't know if he was Hitchcock's choice, but Hitchcock had worked with him before, and so I think there was an easy relationship there. However, Selznick really wanted Joseph Cotton to be cast, who had also worked with Hitchcock before. Um, however, he was a— uh, under contract with Selznick. And uh, I think I, I can't remember what the whole thing was, but but the atom bombs had just fallen. And so Selznick felt this whole MacGuffin of the uranium ore was very pertinent. And he wanted to make sure that this film was the first film that was out that dealt with atomic weaponry. and uh, But Cary Grant wasn't available. And so that was his big reason to kind of quote push for joseph cotton even though it was really just because it was his contract mm-hmm. um and, but you know hitchcock this again rko now had it and and rko's uh executive uh, william dozier he kind of had a clause in the contract that said he can do what he wants and and cary grant was signed and Hallelujah! I think it was great that they were cast. Now, now Selznick did push for Claude Rains to um, to play the uh, the heavy in this film, and luckily it was something that uh, Hitchcock was in favor with. Now he, I think Hitchcock had wanted uh, somebody else to come in instead to play the role. But, you know, I think in this particular case, Selznick kind of managed to sell everybody. And it wasn't a hard twist of the arm. I think everybody was like, you know, Claude Rains would be fine for this. And and he ended up great. I mean, Claude Rains is so good in this film as the villain. I am just what an interesting a sympathetic villain that we have here. I, I love the way that he plays. So I, I think this is just like really perfect casting from top to bottom.
1: Well, it really is. And you talk about Claude Rains as the the sympathetic heavy, right? He is, uh, he's absolutely that. And that is uh, uh, just furthers that whole statement on complexity. The world is complex. And that's the thing that this movie gets right above all else, when you walk away from this movie and you actually feel for their marriage, which is a sham, uh, that is a, a triumph of of this movie. It also lets us take a step back and talk about the kiss, the sexiest kiss since Fifty Shades. Oh yes, oh yes, uh, yeah, the Cary Grant Ingrid Bergman kiss. This was a controversial
0: thing. You know, it's so funny the production code and the rules that they had. Uh, instilled. And there was this silly rule that a kiss couldn't last longer than three seconds.
1: Well, because everybody knows that after three seconds, you get pregnant.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's just a bananas sort of thing. (laughs) And so Hitchcock wanted to, to kind of Push the boundaries with that kiss. And so, what he did is he devised an entire scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman where they were having a conversation, but they kissed through the entire conversation, which is about two and a half minutes long. And what he did is every three seconds, so basically they're kissing, but every three seconds he wanted to make sure that they interrupted the kiss to get some words out. And so it starts on the balcony. This is when they're down in Rio. It starts on the balcony and they're kissing and they're talking and they're kissing and they're talking. And then they kind of, they keep kissing and talking as they walk into the house and then walk to the door and and the whole thing kind of plays out that way. And it's funny because the stars, both Bergman and Grant, both said it felt strange, it felt awkward, uh, nothing felt normal, and Hitchcock said, don't worry, it'll look right on the screen— and it does it works so well it's 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 really sexy the way that it plays out it's like this really kind of intense you know just you can feel this erotic love between these two they they just cannot stop kissing but they have this conversation and i don't know i i I found it to be such a fascinating way to direct this scene. I didn't know at the time when I was watching it about the, the the production code, but reading about it afterward, I'm like, oh, okay. So that's an interesting way to play the scene so that they could have a lot more um, uh, kissing on screen. And it works. It is really effective. It brings this kind of erotic passion out in their relationship and uh, and it, you know he fought against the production code and, and got it through. Really interesting.
1: It is interesting. It is unfortunate that uh, he was wrong and that she did get pregnant. This is wildly underreported. <laughs> 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 it turns out the Hayes code was right all along, and uh, we all suffer for it today. She
0: should have known better. <laughs> oh the next movie we're talking about. Please. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right.
1: We, we got to talk. Uh, we've got to talk a, a little bit about how, uh, uh, novel use, shall we say, of camera.
0: Well, we've already talked about the POV stuff, and I mm-hmm. think that is very important uh, in the novel use of camera. But something else that uh, that Hitchcock does here is he has this beautiful, beautiful shot that starts. It's at the party. This is about midway through the film. This is a party at uh, at Claude Rains's house, and everybody's there. And it's a it's a big night, uh, and the the kind of start of the party. Uh, begins really up high above the crowds and everything. And then we boom down all the way from this this wide high shot, all the way down. We keep going down, 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 down. We see Ingrid Bergman, and we're going down, down, down. We're going right to her back as she's kind of looking around watching people. And the camera goes right up to her hands. So it goes to this extreme close-up of her hands as you see this key That she's holding in her hand and kind of rolling around nervously in her hands. Uh, This Unica key, which is kind of a key plot point. It is a beautiful shot. It actually reminds me quite a bit. Everybody talks about kind of the, the, the strength of this shot. But I feel like Hitchcock had already been playing around with shots like this. You could see it in, I believe, Young and Innocent um in uh, gosh, which has another name both names for that film are just terrible terrible names young and innocent is such a dumb name but it's another I wonder one if we where you can find
1: could... the font young and innocent on dafont.com <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. <laughs> but young and innocent has a similar thing where you're going through a party and it's it's the couple and they're looking for a particular person and the camera moves through this crowd of people and, and it goes to a, an extreme close up of the drummer and then it goes right up to his eyes and and you see him blinking his eyes madly which is kind of this nervous twitch that he has and that's the clue that they're looking for um so it's it's a it's a technique that hitchcock had played around with before but even then it was not as effective as it is here it's just so just flawless in the way that he executes this from such a high angle all the way down. And again, Hitchcock is a director who really likes his high angles, and you're going to see that in much later Hitchcock films like uh, North by Northwest, where he really kind of plays that director-as-God high angle types of shots, which he really does like to employ. And here you get this. It really feels that way, where the director-as-God is kind of descending from on high, just to kind of show us, the audience, this, this plot element beautifully done.
1: I, it is beautifully done, and even more so when you think about the technical accomplishment of actually doing this. Have you ever used a non-reflex camera?
0: I have not. I have not.
1: I have not either, and it was, it's stunning to me to think about that because, you know, I spend a lot of time behind my DSLR, right, the single lens reflex camera, and I spend exactly zero percent of that time behind the camera, thinking about what DSLR actually means, that single lens reflex camera, because I don't need to worry about that because grandfathers and grandfathers before them have actually solved this problem. But what Hitchcock was dealing with at at this point uh, and what uh, Ted Tetzlaff, director of photography, were dealing with at this point is the fact that the lens is put in such a way on the camera that is separate from the viewfinder. So you look through the viewfinder and you get a rough idea of what you're shooting at and then when you're ready to shoot you've moved the viewfinder out of the way and it puts the lens in front of the film so everything is off right and that creates a, a parallax right it's a yeah, it's, right, it's right. a parallax to to what between what you see and what you're actually shooting and then you run the shot right you have no idea while you are shooting If you are shooting what you need to shoot, because everything, particularly from a high angle, uh, everything is going to be off by some percentage of what you thought it was going to be in the frame.
0: So Especially when you even get closer. It's exactly because then you have to make sure, okay, but by the time we get to our hand, we need to be like, yeah, I don't know, an inch off or however far it is.
1: Exactly. And you can kind of tell when they do that because the when it gets close to it, you can kind of tell the camera starts to adjust. It starts to pull back as they actually realize, oh, we're getting actually close to the key. Let's go ahead and pull over to the right uh so that we land on the key. But it is a stunning shot, and I watched that shot, and I started looking at what they were doing here on these reflex cam- or non-reflex cameras. And I wanted to hug a cameraman because th-
0: <laughs> this is—just go find one on the street. To I'm telling
1: hug. you, they—I was full of love for the the whole industry because this is magic. That the problems that they were able to solve, uh, and the shot that they were able to accomplish on a moving non-reflex camera is wizardry
0: this is something we've talked about like in in films uh, that we've looked at in the past yeah. from these decades where it's an era of this exploration with these tools and and when we were talking about uh, gosh i can't remember which one was it um uh, I'm blanking on which one it was. It was one of John Huston's films, uh, but just just looking at how they were using the dolly in complex locations, and how they were able to kind of pull off some of these shots that they that they did at the time. On location, it was, like, incredibly complex. And they were, like, figuring it out on the fly. And that's exactly what they're doing here. It's it's so much work in order to accomplish what they're doing, yet they're doing it. And they're creating really magical moments in these films that, to, by today's standards, I mean, this sort of shot, it's like I could probably get it, you know, just by, you know, going out with a drone and just kind of you know, get, a, yeah, get right. a shot of a drone coming down and, you know, the camera... The lenses and the film or the digital technologies and everything, you you don't have to worry about the focus and everything, and, and it's it's cake. At the time, like a shot like this, this is seriously complex. And the fact that Hitchcock had it in mind and was able to it, it could describe it to his team and get them to accomplish it with all the actors and everybody hitting their marks and everything, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable.
1: It is. It is. It is remarkable. It is the equivalent of like, I, I don't know, the, the the long shots in, you know, casino or uh, following roller sure. girl, you know, I mean, the, the number of pieces that have to be in place to make this shot work and the sheer just blind luck of being able to shoot it and develop it and see what you got and have it be what you intended it to be is um, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, Tesloff, his cinematography throughout this film, I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting film because the bulk of it takes place in Brazil, yet the entire thing other than plates was shot in like on stages in Mm -hmm. Hollywood. I think the only exterior that they actually shot was the horseback riding scene when they uh, when they force kind of uh, her to kind of bump into. Uh, Sebastian, so that they can meet, and uh, everything else was just all plates, which I find really intriguing. But in that context, they do a great job of creating this this world where everything works and everything looks good. And I think Tetzloff's photography throughout the film he does a great job. It's it works really nicely to kind of create this this noirish crime thriller look. It's it's nicely done. Before we leave let 's talk about Mom, oh mother yeah this you know this was a beginning of a situation for Hitchcock that would pop up in his films a lot more later on. I think it's a theme that uh, became pretty prominent for Hitchcock. His own mother had died a few years before. This is really the first time when he's brought his own personal mother issues into kind of the film and and this domineering mother, this this emasculating woman who really is controlling of Alex and the way that she kind of uh, pushes him to to start poisoning Alicia. All of that stuff. It's really it's an interesting dark character, and we're going to see mother issues popping up in Psycho. In um, trying to remember what else, I, there's a, there's a mother in North by Northwest. Um, the birds. It's it's just something that is very much something that is a, a figure in Hitchcock's films, dealing with kind of his own uh, relationship issues that he had with his own mother. And I I think that the way that uh, we have this performance here by Leopoldine Constantine She's she's great. I mean, she's really interesting. This is her only um, English film that she had done. She was, I believe, a German star up through kind of like the war and everything and just didn't get many parts um, after that. And then she was uh, referred to Hitchcock um, by I don't remember who because he had been looking for other people to play her and brought her in. And boy, I just think that she's she does a great job of playing this dark character. I loved her in the film.
1: It's, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, I uh, was it's surprising to see her coming off of this film and having three listed TV credits on IMDb after this film. This is yeah. her last feature film.
0: Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, it it does remind me a little bit, though. It's it's hard. To watch her performance here and not think a little bit of Cloris Leachman, my alone?
0: You don't uh, any, any Frau in look?
1: Frau Blücher. Uh,
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I didn't think that at all. What I actually thought of, weirdly, um, but tying into Gaslight was uh, was Angela Lansbury from the Venturian Canada. Oh.
1: Interesting.
0: Um, Yeah, because, again, a really domineering mother, and that's totally where I went with it. But it's funny that you say that because yours probably makes more sense, (laughs) at least (laughs) look-wise.
1: Yeah. we got to talk about music, Andy. This is, uh, you know, your favorite Roy Webb. I know you're a big Roy Webb
0: head. (laughs) The Webb head. (laughs) Oh, good old Roy. You know, I actually really do enjoy... Uh, I mean, Roy Webb is, he's one of those composers who I think he was uh, a studio staple. I don't think he was necessarily known for, uh, you know, like, you know, being, you know, just a great composer or anything like that. But I do think uh, that his music in this particular film really captured just everything that that Hitchcock needed. It's just a beautiful score. It allows the kind of the mystery and the 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 suspense and everything and the romance to kind of all blend together, play well. We've talked about him a little bit on I, out of the past, maybe the only time.
1: Well, he's one we of those guys him. that, you know, you look at his credits, he wrote a boatload of stock music from 1930 yeah. to 1960, and he is uncredited on all of these things uh in until now posthumously and it's just his stuff was used in these movies i actually found this movie and this music to be uh, an exceptional relief uh after the the good score wrong movie last great week score. Exactly. Yeah, a it's great, a great score exactly great score and I totally agree you're right I'm underselling how great that score is bad movie uh pairing this I, I feel like worked really well for me I did not have any of those sort of jarring moments with this movie I quite enjoyed it
0: no, it works beautifully. And I, this was one of those things where, uh, again, Hitchcock was pushing to get Bernard Herrmann, but he was still unavailable. And uh, Roy Webb, who, I mean, he was a, a fan of Herrmann's anyway. Um, he came on board to, to he was the RKO staff composer, which is why he came on board. He had been doing a lot of stuff with Val Lewton's projects. And so, you know, he, I think the darkness and the tone worked really well and, and it sounds like from what I've read, it sounds like neither he nor Hitchcock had much affection for Selznick and and kind of the the way that Selznick would push them to do things. And uh Webb and Hitchcock had a great time coming up with the different themes for this. no no big love themes, no kind of cliches that that fit anywhere. They just really liked working together. And I I tell you, I mean, it may not be up there with Psycho or North by Northwest or some of those scores, but I think this is is really just a beautiful Hitchcock score, and I think there's a lot of great uh, pieces uh, throughout. so it's it's definitely one to remember.
1: Let me just ask you this, Andy. On the remakes, did they use the Notorious font?
0: <laughs> you know, I didn't check, but if they did, they really screwed things up. No, this is what's, This is really interesting. And I, I don't know if this falls under remakes or just interesting facts and tidbits. But, um, okay, so first of all, the Saturday Evening Post story that this was suggested by, we're saying... <laughs> um, there's another silent film actually from 1927 called Convoy that was actually based on the story. Um, so I'm curious now to kind of check that out and see how it might compare to this one. Um the there was a remake of this in in 92. It was a TV movie. I don't, none of the people involved are familiar at all. So I I just don't think it's one of those things that really gained any traction at all. What's interesting though is that this story, because I, and and honestly, I really believe it's because it has such an interesting psychological exploration of these characters. It's become something that people kind of use to infuse in their own films. This is a really interesting one, Pete. Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Pete the tv show the animated tv show (laughs) yes star wars the clone wars season two there's an episode called senate spy and they they do like an almost line for line adaptation of this at some points and even the final frame of the episode is framed the same way as the final frame is done in this film it, it's it's thematically done very similarly. Now, Likewise, have you
1: watched this recently? Because I know, weren't you doing The Clone Wars?
0: I was doing The Clone Wars. I, I, I got up into season five and then uh, it disappeared from Netflix. So I've <laughs> been unable to, uh, and I wasn't unable to return to check it out because of that as well. So I really would have loved to. But Weirdly, that like as soon as I read the plot synopsis of that episode, I'm like, I totally remember that. I know exactly what they're talking about. So it is exactly what they did, and so it's interesting. And likewise, Mission Impossible Two, yeah. Now it's it's a it's a virus. It's not uranium, but they even included some dialogue from Notorious in that film. That's how much the homage was that they were doing. So. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a, an interesting element to kind of throw into other projects. That's I find it crazy. to be uh, intriguing, yeah. That's just crazy. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Uh,
1: how did do an awards season? I hope it won
0: all the awards, Andy. I'd like to say this did win all the awards, Pete.
1: <laughs> I would but... like it. Can we just pretend that you
0: did? <laughs> yeah, <You're afraid? laughs> uh, right. For, for the Academy Awards, it, it had three wins, three other nominations. Again, for the time, it's pretty good, you know. Uh, at the Oscars, Claude Rains was, of course, nominated for uh, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, as well he should have been. And Ben Hecht was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Um, you know, that's that's great. I think both of them deserved those nominations. Um, when you look at what they... Um, What they lost against, though, let's see. Uh, Well, I can understand it. Claude Rains lost uh, his uh, performance to Harold Russell in The Best Years of Our Lives. And that's a tricky one because Harold Russell, you know, he had gone through a lot of the stuff that his character did, losing an arm and all that sort of stuff. I, I guess I can see why maybe that that would be an okay win. As for Ben Hecht, he lost uh, to the seventh veil, which I am just not even familiar about or familiar with. So I can't even tell you what I think of that as a choice. Uh, This is the synopsis of The Seventh Veil. One dark summer night, Francesca Cunningham, a once world-famed pianist, escapes from her hospital room and tries to commit suicide by jumping off a local bridge. She is rescued and taken back to the hospital and undergoes psychological treatment by Dr. Larson. Larson desperately wanted to know the events and persons who drove her to this state and help her. He makes Francesca talk about her past, a past with a controlling guardian, Nicholas no friends, kept apart from the man she loved, and forced to practice the piano five to six hours a day.
1: Well, from all that, right. I'd pick this film. <laughs> yeah.
0: Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, let's see. Over at, uh, we're, okay, so I don't understand what these awards are, but there are some awards called the Bambi Awards. Have you oh, ever heard of the Bambi Awards?
1: Only that time Bambi went up against Godzilla.
0: <laughs> right. No, actually uh, the Bambi Awards are a German award. It is a a, a German media award. And uh, this is an award. Weirdly, the statue looks like Bambi Pete. So
1: you're not (laughs) in the pre Godzilla or post Godzilla (laughs) state?
0: The pre Godzilla. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, But I I guess this may show to like how long this film was playing around the world. 1952. So basically, a full five years later or six years later, really, uh, Ingrid Bergman won Best International Actress for her performance in this film. Oh. Uh, at the at the Cannes Film Festival Alfred Hitchcock was nominated for the uh Grand Prize of the festival did not win. Um so it's uh, you know it's one of those films didn't really take home much but um man it's a film that sticks with you though isn't it? God
1: it really is. It really is. I'm uh, I I found this film just delightful to watch and I maybe it was a uh, you know giving water to me after spending time in the desert. I don't know, but it, it was <laughs> it was really fun. I hope it ages well. It was a, a great watch, and what's even better about it, I will just say, if you haven't seen the movie, probably should have led with this, it is, uh, a, you know, it's fallen into the public domain, so even though you can find it, you should go get the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, if, if, if you can't, but you can also watch it on YouTube and you should, because it's probably not going anywhere uh, in spite of Take down notices elsewhere. They're not they're not gonna get this one.
0: <laughs> they're not gonna take this from me. Coppa. Yeah. Although, yeah. Look for look for as nice a copy as you can find, though. Because yeah. it's a good one. It's a beautiful image.
1: If you have an old palm trio, you should try to watch it on that screen. That's a 320. 320 by wow. what? To 160 <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> You should try and watch it there. <laughs> It'll be a hit. And if you could do it in a bathroom <laughs> stall. <laughs>
0: you should do that. How did it do at the box office? Well, Hitchcock's budget dropped from the 1.5 million he had for Spellbound to just 1 million for Notorious. I'm assuming that was the transition from Selznick to RKO. That is about 12.3 million in today's dollars for this one. No idea why the reduction um but uh, like I like last time, perhaps he just needed a good Salvador Dali dream sequence that really would have <laughs> given <laughs> him Arc- it right the motivation the <laughs> <laughs> to, to give him more money. <laughs> Uh, the movie did open, uh, it premiered August 15th, 1946 uh, in New York. I couldn't find the actual release date, but that's when it premiered. It uh, was a hit. This became the eighth most popular film of the year, earning $24.5 million domestically, which is about $465.7 million in today's dollars. That puts this film at an adjusted profit per finish minute of almost $4.5 million. A solid success for old Hitch. Unfortunately, and not to put too big a sense of foreboding on things, but it would be the last hit film that Bergman would have in over 10 years. Okay, here's what we
1: need, Salvador. When the wine bottle breaks, we're going to need everybody to go into a uranium-induced fugue state for 27 minutes. (laughs) Can you do that for us? I, I think, that yeah, I'd see, i show then up again, for that, sure. Maybe I don't. <laughs> the movie's already to over two hours, right? I mean, <laughs> why not? <laughs> oh. oh, geez. <laughs> I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, if it's a link there, it'll take you exactly to this movie on flickchart where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours.
0: First up, we have Notorious, and this is so fitting, Pete. Notorious or Spellbound?
1: I'd like to open the bidding with Notorious, please, Andy.
0: Hundred percent Notorious. Notorious or Fargo? Mm, very curious where you're going to land on this. In fact, I'll begin holding my breath. <laughs> I'm going to go. Ugh, I'm going to go with Fargo. I'm going to go with Notorious. Hey, wow. I'm proud of you. Yeah. I'm still not changing my vote, but still. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Paper. Wow. Notorious takes it. Mm. Sweet, sweet victory. Uh That's good. Notorious or Creed Mm. here. I think I'll probably go with Notorious. Creed is awfully good. It
1: is awfully good. And you
0: know, I'm a big fan. But I, I think I'm going with Notorious, too.
1: I don't need to tell I'm you, surprised. this movie performed pretty well on my own flick chart. Spoiler! Okay. Notorious <laughs> or All the President's Men, Pete? All the President's Men, Andy.
0: You shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, I feel like I might go with Notorious here. What? I'm sorry. Who is this? What podcast is this? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I'm okay giving you all the presidents.
1: No, no, no. Men. Hey, it's a principled fight. Let's do it. No,
0: no, no. Nope, no, you picked too already late. one, too late. Two, nope, too late, three, paper. Uh, all the president's men. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all the president's uh, men beats paper again. <laughs> Notorious or nine queens. Wow. I haven't seen that pop up uh, in forever. Wow. And that's a really good one. Yeah. Notorious. Um
1: Nine queens. One, two, three, scissors. Oh, well. All right, ready? Okay, One, One, two, two, three,
0: scissors. 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 Oh, (laughs) Notorious wins. Notorious or Brazil? You know, I'm going to Brazil, Pete. I will go to Brazil with you, Andy. Weirdly, Notorious takes place in Brazil. (laughs) See, we all win. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> notorious or old boy? Uh, here I'm going. Notorious. Notorious. Notorious or gaslight? Oh, I love these Ingrid Bergman matchups. Uh, I have to go gaslight though. Seriously? No, no. Ooh, man, this is a uh, this is hard.
1: Uh, I love gaslight for what it was and what it represents, but as movie to movie, having just watched them side by side, I'm
0: notorious. I. I'm pretty wishy washy here, so I feel like I should give it to you because I really could go either way. Okay. I feel that's... like I want to say gaslight, but then when I say that, I say I want to go to notorious. And then when I say that, I want to go gaslight. So I'll I'll never be able to <laughs> you should just put a fork in it. Yeah. That's <laughs> all right. Notorious or casino royale. I gotta go casino royale. Uh,
1: okay. All right, I agree.
0: I love that you are having such difficulties with this though. Yeah. This is exciting. I've had a hard time. Yeah. Notorious landed one spot above Gaslight. It landed at spot 33, bumping Gaslight down to 34. Uh, I think that's a great spot for Notorious. 33 out of 406. That is a uh, 92% on our chart.
1: That's fantastic. How did it do on yours?
0: It wasn't quite as high, but still really high. It was 462 out of 4149, which is an 89% on my chart.
1: That's so funny. Uh, it, as as much as I feel like I even came to the defense of this movie a couple of times there, I still ended up higher on yours. Uh, it's uh, 100 and, <laughs> 159 out of 1089. That's an 85. Uh, and I don't know why. What are you going to do? I don't know. Flick chart. Uh. Uh, but I chart. but I will tell you, if I go by the algorithm here, it tells me I should be putting this as a four and a half stars uh, elsewhere. I'm not going to do that. It's going to be a five star for me over on letterboxcom slash
0: The Next Reel. What about you? Yeah, this is a straight up five star film. Uh, this film, I hadn't seen it in a while. I, I was looking forward to revisiting this in my uh, Hitchcock series that I'm doing and i uh but i don 't remember it being i don 't remember having quite as much a spell over me um in the past, but wow, I just was like right there with it and at the end, when he goes in and and picks her up and carries her out, I was just like on pins and needles watching it just beautifully done, yeah, absolute five star with a heart How, we didn't even talk about that
1: shot, Andy that last sequence mm. is amazing yeah. it is so ridiculously patient it is. Such a struggle to watch him carry and the way they stick with those tight shots face to, face to face to face to face to face is is it's edge of your seat stuff. And it's so stupid simple. The architecture of that scene is so right. simple and it is he just wrenches every single drop of angst out of it. I'm, it's incredible
0: especially because the way that Claude reigns is, you know, he is so nervous because, I mean, he legitimately loved her, and that's what I found so interesting about his character. Like, he legitimately loved her, and then he was totally stabbed in the back, which is great to see how that played out. But then, to have all of this, this complexity with her getting poisoned and everything, and now Cary Grant is taking her out of his house with with all of these German people downstairs as they're watching, and he's like, what am I going to do? Should I go out with them, or should I, you know, to, as if we're going to the doctor uh, it was beautifully done It's such a beautifully this is a great example of a psychological uh, c- like climax like mm-hmm. the, you're there's so much intensity here and all you have is a guy carrying a woman down <laughs> out of a house yeah
1: that's all it is and and that <clears throat> the that Claude Rains has to turn around and go <sighs> back it is yeah it just it's just like the, ripping your heart out of your chest with, it's, the, with the door closing. Yes. At the end. Oh, oh, it's amazing. Man. It's amazing. Yeah. Eat dirt, Good John stuff. Snow. OK, <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Uh, we've it is now ranked and we're five stars with a heart. And now we're done for a little bit with this movie. We're going to move on to another Bergman. Where do we go from here?
0: We are. We are jumping forward uh, a couple of years. We're going to 1950. This is going to be an interesting uh, uh, kind of next step for our conversation about Ingrid Bergman as an actress. We are leaving kind of this Hollywood period. She she does more films between 1946 when she did this and 1950 when she does Stromboli, which is our next film. But uh, there is this uh, kind of this this period that she does in Italy there. And it'll be interesting. We'll talk about this more next next week as she kind of goes through this Italian period of her career when she's making films over there. Um, And starting with this film Stromboli from 1950 directed by Roberto Rossellini. Now, I have not seen this movie. I haven't either. Uh, Criterion did release, I think it's three of the five films that Rossellini and Bergman did together over in Italy. It's a, I think it's a, a three-pack that they put out. I'm really curious because, uh, and actually I picked it up from the library just the other day, they actually, for Stromboli, they actually have two versions, the English version and the Italian version, and they're different lengths. So if I have time, I'm going to try to watch both versions so that I can uh, really kind of wrap my head around this project.
1: Well, let me tell you what I'm struggling with. That for all these years, I have thought of Stromboli. I always thought it was an Italian, like, kitchen comedy. (laughs)
0: Well, you, because uh, of the food?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've just always assumed, I'll get around to it one day. It'll be a fun kind of family movie night, like, of uh, watching period movies. Uh, of, and it takes place probably in a kitchen. It's like Chef, but in Italy. And with Bergman. And it'll be great. It doesn't look
0: as funny. No. This is Italian neorealism. Yeah, this, is a, I, this might be our first delve into kind of that that neorealism sense of uh, filmmaking. So, uh, at least with the Italian neorealists. <sighs> so in the, in the delightful. 50s, so. Yep. Get ready. It's a ride. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute.
1: We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. We started with 2008's Iron Man And now really is the sweet spot. If you haven't started that show, you should start now. We're weeks away from finishing this first movie as I am talking to you right now. And so by the time you catch up to present, you'll be done.
0: And you'll be ready. It's
1: the ultimate perfect binge. And you'll be caught up with everybody else. This is the sweet spot right. right now. Don't miss your opportunity.
0: You can support that show and all of our other shows over on the slash Patreon, where you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth Andy, as Amazon sometimes doeth.
1: Amazon half doeth. We split. We split the vote today, Andy. I'm a regular dangling Chad.
0: <laughs> that's uh, that's what I've always called you, Pete.
1: <laughs> I, I went with a common sense media because I was just first of all curious. Have any kids seen this movie, mm. Andy? Ah, a kid has seen this movie. One kid. And, and you have the proof. I have the proof <laughs> on the internet. Proof that a That's child right. has seen Notorious and gives it a five star review. Wow! I want to hang with this child. Are you
0: ready? I I cannot wait. Pins and needles over here.
1: The mysterious movie that is Notorious still shines today. Notorious is a shockingly spine-tingling take on World War II. It stars Ingrid Bergman as Alicia Huberman, an amazing female character. This movie was so great, It's not iffy at all, but I rated it age 11 and up because it's pretty slow in the beginning and not many kids will probably like the first half hour. That all being said, now I can talk about the good parts. Notorious is about Alicia, who has been hired by America to spy on a Nazi leader in Brazil. It's so good, and the ending is even better. Everyone should see Notorious. This movie contains positive
0: role models but also
1: drinking drugs and smoking. And that kid, Andy, is 11
0: years old. They're they're like, me and above can watch this movie. That's right. Or at least won't be bored by this That's movie. That's right. That's right. I now wish that I had watched it with my own daughter. You should
1: have watched it with your daughter.
0: Yeah, absolutely hmm. should have.
1: All right. What do you got?
0: Well, Pete, I did not go to the kids. I did not go that route. I uh, Instead, I said, you know what? There has to be somebody... Over on on, uh, on Amazon, who gave me a one star review that I could uh, that I could really bring to people because you know we love this movie we like to go opposite so I found yeah. a one star that I think is a good example of uh, people's opinions as to is why it, they don't is it like about
1: this the movie. packaging are they complaining about the packaging <laughs> it is
0: not about the packaging but there's plenty this is a one star review by Joshua Mitchell who says. I don't remember Mr. Grant playing an overweight, vulgar rapper. <laughs> Received the rapper biopic instead of the classic. <laughs> so disappointing. This was bought through a private seller and does not reflect on Amazon or the greatness of the original film of the same title. <laughs> That's so true. clearly, this is not the biopic for the Notorious B.I.G. But now, now we know
1: for anybody who was actually secretly hoping that Biggie Smalls actually played the Cary Grant role in his own film this is not that's not that movie oh, either
0: <laughs> although now I, I I'm very curious about people who pick this up thinking this is the biopic
1: right <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's like, I didn't know he's been alive that long he was around when there were Nazis <laughs>
1: oh, oh man, man.
0: <laughs> oh, good stuff
1: thanks Amazon Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 8, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I hope it's harder than season 7 was. Mm, Okay, first up, the Odyssey films. (laughs) Easy. 2001, 2010. Okay, Planet of the
0: Apes. Oh, my goodness. Planet of the Apes. Great book. (laughs)
1: 1968 Best Picture nominees.
0: Uh, Okay, well, The Line of Winter. Oliver, uh, from Oliver Twist, Romeo and Juliet, of course. Um, Was Rachel, Rachel based on a book? It was Margaret Lawrence's A Jest of God, also on Audible. Awesome. Yeah, we have covered a lot of great movies that started as books.
1: Books like Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls.
0: And Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, both of which were part of our Ingrid Bergman series.
1: So many great
0: movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun. It takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.